0: Once in a while, you know, you and I might look at a list like that, and we would say, hey, you know, uh, we agree those people should be declared unwelcome. Other times, we're not so sure. We might disagree about that. Let me give you a couple of for instances. A uh, former president of Austria, he also served as the secretary general of the United Nations. He was declared not welcome by our own country because he was accused of having known about Nazi war crimes and did nothing about them. On the other hand, a Japanese diplomat helped thousands of Jews escape Nazi-occupied Lithuania only to be be declared not welcome in the Soviet Union as a result. Pretty much the same issues, only flip-flopped, right? How would we stand on being declared persona non grata? It's still a big deal, right, to be declared not welcome, and yet at the same time, it's a bit of a mixed bag, depending on circumstances. Our biblical passage today offers us a bit of a rarity, a glimpse at this kind of an event. For it follows the story of a family declared not welcome. And that family was comprised of followers of God. They were escorted out of the country and declared not welcome. Why? Why were they not welcome? Did they make poor choices or were they discriminated against? I think most Christians, when we look at Genesis chapter 12 all the way up to chapter 50, we have a tendency to just say there are three subjects or three characters that are being talked about. That would be, of course, Abraham, the story of Abraham, and then his son, the story of Isaac, and then uh, one of his sons, the story of Jacob. And we would think that Genesis 12 through 50 only is about these three people. But someone else has divvied up the book in an entirely different way. And I hope that you can see this. I know that it's darkened. But uh, what that is, is on the left you see two people set side by side. There are stories being told more or less simultaneously. There's the story of Abraham and Lot, beginning in chapter 11 and going all the way up through chapter 25. There's the story of Sarah and Hagar, beginning in chapter 11 and going up to chapter 23. There's the story of Ishmael and Isaac. There's the story of Esau and Jacob. The story of Rachel and Leah, and the story of Judah and Joseph. All set side by side in these interesting pairs. And as you can see, this way of divvying up the rest of the book not only involves more people and juxtaposes that side by side to each other, it also includes women, not just men. This, it seems to me, would be a better way to divide up the rest of the story that we are going to study together as we look through the book of Genesis. But right now, and regardless of how we divide up the book, we're gonna take a hard look at the man called Abraham. And we pick up his story in Genesis chapter 12, even though we heard about him at the very end of Genesis 11. And so Genesis chapter 12, reading the word of God. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your birthplace, and your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. The story continues and I'm going to continue it but I want to stop for just a minute. Some weeks ago someone asked me whether or not I thought Shem, Ham, and Japheth were all triplets, basically, born at the same time. And I was unable to answer that question, but since then, I've given it some more thought. And the story of Abram, Nahor, and Haran is told in the exact same language. They're introduced to us in the Bible in the exact same way. And when we track their story, we find out that they were not born at the same time. That Abram was 75 years old when he left to go to Canaan. His father, Terah died when he was 205 years old. You do the math. How many years is that? When was it that Terah gave birth to Abram? He was like, what, 130? I think is the math. But the Bible explicitly says he became a father when he was 70. So that means one of the three boys, of his boys, was born much earlier than the other two. Right? So since the language is identical in describing that group of three as it is to the other group of three, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, I assume neither groups of three are triplets. They were just born over a period of time. So continuing, Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran, and he took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, and all his wealth, his livestock, and all the people he had taken into his household at Haran, and headed for the land of Canaan. When they arrived in Canaan, Abram traveled through the land as far as Shechem. There he set up camp beside the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the area was inhabited by Canaanites. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. Then Abram continued traveling south by stages toward the Negev. At that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, and Abram went down to Egypt, where he lived as a foreigner. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So please tell them you are my sister. Then they will spare my life and treat me well because of you. And sure enough, when Abram arrived in Egypt, everyone noticed Sarai's beauty. When the palace officials saw her, they sang her praises to Pharaoh, their king, and Sarai was taken into his palace. Then Pharaoh gave Abram many guests because of her, sheep, goats, cattle, Male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord sent terrible plagues upon Pharaoh and his household because of Sarai, Abram's Abram's wife. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and accused him sharply. What have you done to me? He demanded. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister and allow me to take her as my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and get out. Pharaoh ordered some of his men to escort them, and he sent Abram out of the country, along with his wife and all that he had. Wow. Talk about a blockbuster first story of a person's life in the Bible, right? I mean, this is the first story of this guy, really. Really? And, man, I mean, it's the stuff of legends. It's the kind of thing you could easily make into a television show and probably a great soap opera. One of the things that comes more clear, especially if you do read Hebrew, but it can come clear as you read English, uh, not as clear, but clear, Abraham has two stories that bookend his life. They are the important moments told about Abraham. Both stories involve a faith-filled journey away from everything Abraham knows and is comfortable with. The first story has Abraham leaving everything that has to do with his past, he has to leave it behind. While the second story has him literally jettisoning his future. These stories have similar elements that actually easily connect them. So let me see if I can connect the dots. This word and this word are unique in Hebrew. Lech, lecha is the expression that shows up in these two places. And it means you yourself go or from or out of and uh, it only shows up in the story of Abraham in these two places but that's not all we have that and we also have this go where I show you but that's not all We also have this. Three specific statements beginning each of these two stories that deepen the impact a great deal, that show what kind of heart-rending decision god is asking abraham to make each statement gets progressively deeper and closer to abraham's heart do you see that yeah incredible right so these stories demonstrate for us that god wants us to trust him you know he wants us to trust him even when things are bleak and life is uncertain. These stories invite us to go on a journey with God, believing all along, all along our way that God wants the best for us and he is going to do nothing but good toward us if we will but trust him. Now, Abraham seems to understand this, and even though imperfectly, he trusts God and he does as God directs him to do. God's goal and his methods are very clearly laid out for us in Abraham's story. Here is the goal. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. That's a pretty lofty goal, wouldn't you say? And certainly one that we're glad God has because it even includes us. Now we're going to say more about this the next time we get together because I want to recap a little bit all the different language that points toward Jesus. And this verse actually points toward Jesus. But we'll recap that next time we get together. Method-wise, very clear, God says, here's how it's going to work. I'm going to bless you. I also want you to cooperate, be a blessing. Now, some versions have it more like it's just an after-fact and you will be a blessing. But in Hebrew, it's written as an imperative Be a blessing. Make that decision to bless other people. So God's stated purpose is clear. His methods are indivisibly linked with his goal. God intends to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. And he wants Abraham and his family to cooperate by being a blessing to the people around them. God wants them to be a blessing. He wants you and he wants me to be a blessing. Choose to bless other people. Live your life in such a way that you are a help, not a hindrance to other people. So, one of the things that happens, and it even happens on the translation basis, and that bothers me at times, uh, is this phrase here all the people that he had taken into his household. Some people translate this and misunderstand it as uh, believing somehow that, you know, Abraham, because of some wealth, had bought a bunch of servants and was living the high life. And believe it or not, it has nothing to do with that. The The Hebrew word for slaves does not even appear in that phraseology there. What actually seems to have occurred is that Abraham shared his faith with people before he left his birthplace and native country and father's house. He shared his faith, and people voluntarily joined him. They knew that he was on a mission for God to go to Canaan, and they said, we're going with you. Now, earlier we read in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26... Then people began to call upon, and I said the Hebrew also means to call out the name of the Lord. People began not only to praise God and to pray to him, but there were people who also began to evangelize. They began to share their faith with their neighbor. Here we have another instance of that in the Old Testament. Not only did the family of Shem earlier share their faith, but now we hear that Abraham has also done the same thing. His family, he and his family have shared their faith, and people have voluntarily joined them to go to the land of Canaan. That's a great thing. Family style evangelism. Now, there's a cool opportunity for each of us, right? We have an opportunity as a family to share our faith with other people. Do we take advantage of that? Use it as we can. Use our family to, you know, invite other people to the Lord. Well, we move on, and we find out that when they get to the land of Canaan, it's already inhabited. And the idea here seems to be God wants Abram and his family to not really be permanent residents, but to be travelers through the land of Canaan. We learn as we read through later scripture that this verse also implies God had a strong love for and a very long-standing patience with the Canaanites. You will remember that I shared with you earlier verses from Deuteronomy chapter 2 and Amos chapter 9, and they clearly teach us that God had pulled off an Exodus-like event for the Philistines, right? And other people in Canaan. And so the point that I'm trying to get to here is the people who are living in the land, God placed them there. And he was working with them, trying to use them as well to spread his message of love to other people. He was blessing them. It wasn't working out so well. They were slowly turning more towards sin and the devil and not towards God. And God can see that was happening. And so he informs Abraham, hey, you know, the Canaanites are not really living their lives to be a blessing to other people. And so this is what's going to happen. I'm going to give this land to your descendants. Now notice, it does not say at this point, to you and your descendants. Nor does it say how long it's going to be until they gain the land. Those of you who have studied your Bibles a little bit, how long is it going to be until Abraham's kin would actually gain the land? Do you remember? Say 400 years. 400 plus years, if I remember right. Closer to 500 years. Well, that's a lot of strong love and a lot of long-standing patience on God's part, right? I mean, that's a long, long time to wait. And wait is what Abram did. He seemed to realize that this was, you know, I'm in this for the long haul. I have to take the big picture view, the long range view. And so he built an altar to the Lord. Abram was constantly expressing his faith uh, towards God, his belief that there was a promised Savior who would come and who, like the animal uh, that Abram sacrificed on his altar, Jesus would die so that other people might live. He seemed to understand that. And then a famine strikes the land of of Canaan, and he decides that it would be a good time to vacate for a while, head down to Egypt. Egypt, you know, the land of Canaan was a land that needed to have constant rainfall occurring at specific times, or it was just not a good place to live. Uh, And uh, so this apparently was the case. They weren't getting good rainfall, And so you go down to Egypt, and of course they have the Nile River. There's lots of water, and everything gets watered on a regular basis. That's where the food is. And and throughout the Bible, you'll find multiple times people head to Egypt to kind of save their lives when things get tough. And so just before, you know, right at the border of uh, Egypt, Abram asks his wife if she would do a favor for him. Would you tell the people of Egypt, that you are my sister instead of my wife. Now, so far in our biblical story, we have heard the snake lying to Eve in the Garden of Eden. We've heard Cain lying to God. I don't know where my brother Abel is. We've heard also about violence going on before the flood, widespread violence. Lying, it seems, has become as commonplace as violence in our world. In fact, lying is one of the most common sins for each of us. Would you agree with me? It is very easy for us to tell lies as human beings. But why does Abram want to deceive the Egyptians? His answer is clear. He fears for his own life. Why didn't didn't he simply trust God to protect him? well that's a good question I mean I read the story of Ezra and Ezra was headed back to rebuild the city and he had a bunch of really expensive like artifacts and probably some money and he prayed that God would protect them and God did why, why didn't Abram trust God to protect him had God not been protecting him on his journey so far Now, when we go forward in Abraham's story, we find he has not learned a lesson yet. And so he does the same thing all over again. And when asked, why have you done this to me? He says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is really my sister, my half-sister, even though she's also my wife. Now, in that story, just like the story we're studying, the Egyptian man had good motives, again, for what he was doing. In fact, he even protests that he had good motives to God, and God says, well, I know you did. That's that's not the problem. God agrees with the Egyptian. But Abraham goes on to say that this plan of, of lying about his relationship with his wife was (laughs) something they did at every place they went to. Now, I'm hoping he's exaggerating when he said that, but I don't know that he is, for sure. I mean, ugh and double ugh, right? The number of lies told in the book of Genesis is astonishing. Astonishing. But that's not all, right? Right? you know what l- religious bigotry is? Religious bigotry. That's where you believe that your religion is better than someone else's religion or their lack thereof. I'm religious and you're not. Abraham shows that he is a religious bigot. My version of religion is so much better than yours that it caused me to lie. Well, if my version of religion is so much better, why do I need to lie? I mean, that would be the question we would all want to ask ourselves, right? He's also uncomfortably comfortable with telling half-truths. Well, you know, she is my wife, but... She's also my half-sister. So, you know, it's okay if I say she's my sister. Ugh, 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 and ugh. So Abraham proves to be right, at least regarding his wife's beauty, you know. The Egyptians do take notice. Apparently, she was a stunningly beautiful woman. Um, At that point, she would have been like middle-aged, so she would have been very, very beautiful uh, for her time. Now, the question is okay, since he's right about his wife's beauty, is he right that they would kill him in order to take her? And the answer to that would be no. Instead, we read, <laughs> what? Instead of killing Abram to take his wife, what do they do? They offer him a lot of stuff, they treat him extremely well. In fact, Uh, not only was he dead wrong in how they would respond, they shower him with gifts, and unusual gifts. I mean, giving people servants and camels, even in that day, would have been unusual. But to shower him with all this stuff, and it talks about they gave him many gifts, and sheep, goats, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. He comes out rich because he's lied. Ugh. While he is being quite self-centered, I, I'm doing this so I can stay alive, they are being incredibly generous, should we say even unselfish? But all of this places Sarai in a very uncomfortable position, even a dangerous position, wouldn't you say? And we see how Abram responded. I mean, he did nothing, but, well, received the gifts, I guess. But now we see how God responded. How did God respond? Unlike her husband, God immediately comes to her aid. Immediately. I don't know about you, but I have asked myself this question. But why did God choose this way of dealing with the problem? I mean, it does look a little heavy-handed. And it's a tough question, and I'm not quite sure how to answer it. But one thing I can say for certain is that Sarai and Abram seemed unwilling to tell the truth, which tends to handcuff God a great deal. Now what can God do? Now what's interesting is there's a gap in this story, and we have to fill it somehow. I don't know how you filled the gap. We have no idea how Pharaoh learned that Sarai was Abram's wife. No idea at all, but he did learn it, obviously. And probably the plague that fell upon him and his his people uh, somehow made this very clear. They were the target and she was not. And so he went to her and said, what's going on? That would be my guess. I'm using my imagination to fill the gap. How did he find out? what was really happening. But when he speaks, when he speaks, we actually hear an echo of God in Pharaoh's words. What have you done? Do you remember hearing that as we've been studying the book of Genesis? Let me see. Didn't God himself say that to Eve? Didn't God also say that to Cain? Now I want you to put The the seriousness of their stories, together with this story, and ask yourself, how serious a problem was this that Abram and his wife have caused for the Egyptians? How serious is this problem? God speaks in much the same way as Pharaoh does. We witness again the pain and the confusion that making poor choices and telling lies causes other people. There's a lot of pain and confusion caused when we lie and make bad choices. And then Abram and all his company became persona non grata. Ooh even escorted out of the country. Now what's interesting is that in this verse, Pharaoh not only has already spoken like God, he acts like God. The word you see here is the same word that's found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, which says that God sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. He speaks like God. He acts like God. Mimicking God's actions and words. Is God working through Pharaoh? Secondly, if it does not bother us so much to read that Pharaoh sent Abram and Sarah and company uh, out of his country... Why is it we get a little bit anxious when we read that God sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden? Because that does trouble us at times. Yet the two parties are doing the same thing. Regardless, here we learn the painful truth that not one, not one of even an The best of God's followers. Not even the most faithful of God's followers is perfect. Not one is sin free. Even the couple known as the father and mother of everyone who will ever have faith. Even they are not sinless. Far from it. Directed to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, they begin their physical and their spiritual journey by becoming persona non grata. Whoa. Will they do better later on? Did they eventually learn from this mistake? And if so, when? And if so, how? How? Well, we also need to take a larger view, something we don't always like to do, but we take a larger view of what we've read so far. It's a good thing to do, I think, ever so often. Do you feel uncertain or even confused at times about how God responded to the choices that people have made? Are you always certain who is following God and who is not? I mean, look at how God, you know, uh, treated Adam and Eve. They sin, and he sends them out of the garden. Cain murders someone, and while the earth curses Cain and says, you know, you will no longer be able to earn the fruit of the, uh, like you did before, the produce as you did before, yet nevertheless God protects Cain, keeps him alive from being murdered himself. Lamech, Cain's descendant, murders someone. We don't hear about God exercising capital punishment there either. The pre-flood people, the antediluvians as we often call them, they engage in a great deal of violence. Violence seems to take over the world. God cleanses the earth of them. Noah hops on the ark, but after jumping off, gets drunk. And his son Ham sees him naked and begins to, you know, talk about it. The Canaanites that we hear about who are in the land, God is almost infinitely patient with them. Hundreds of years go by. Abram and Sarah. Sarai, excuse me, are (laughs) strangely protected, though they are the ones that are lying. And the Egyptians, who appear to be operating from good motives, they have plagues fall on them. Now, granted, they probably were removed, I think, I suspect, um, once they returned Sarai to Abram. How do you feel about how God is governing our world at this point? Are you confused? Are you remembering how much elapsed time there has been since creation? How long have we been? Can you guess? Do you know? Remember, all those people in the early pre-flood days lived a long, long time. Several thousand years have gone by. Does that put into perspective some God's patience with human beings? And then, of course, when you're taking the big view, why not take a look at some of sin's ugliness? We start out with the snake lying. Foolish, unrealistic thinking. Eve says, this fruit, eating this fruit is going to make me wise and be like God. Really? Eating a piece of fruit is going to do all that for you? And then there's more lying that goes on between, uh, you know, Adam and Eve and God and so on. And then there's the backstabbing. The woman you gave me, she made me do it. No, the snake you created, he made me do it. The backstabbing, right? Right? And then there's murder. Cain murders Abel. And then there's more lying. I don't know where my brother is. You know, I may have buried him, but I... And then there's the violence that takes over the world. Pre-flood. And then there's the attention-grabbing that goes on in uh, the building of the Tower of Abel. Let's make a name for ourselves. And now there's more lying. Does sin look attractive to you as it pervades planet Earth? Surely, it seems to me, sin is ugly. And we're all infected with it. Yet God often protects people from their own messes. Which causes them, of course, to be very grateful. Has God ever rescued you? From any of your messes is he even doing that today for choices you and i have made god's still bailing us out abram was sent out of egypt not yet a better man slowly learning to be the person god wanted him to be are you and i thinking that we learn more quickly than abram or are we just as slow maybe slower Did he make a difference in his world? Yes. Sporadically he did. He left all his past. He shared his faith in God with others. He worshipped God at many places with all these people. He influenced people for good often. But he also messed up rather badly. And just as God was patient with the Canaanites, so God was patient with Abram. And all of that suggests... That God is incredibly, infinitely patient with you and with me. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty glad that he is. And that is why I worship God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for being so patient with us. Thank you for Constantly having our best interests in your heart and working hard to make these things happen. Please forgive us for when we are throwing up roadblocks and refusing and dragging our feet. Help us, God, to become the good people you want us to be, people who live.